This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. It's attention, you know, it's attention of kind of being a native son and coming back and feeling like a stranger, but yet feeling like this is still, you know, your body or this is still your, your neighborhood. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, an episode from our vault. Poet Willie Perdomo comes home. For today's episode, I'm going to hand it to our producer, Antonia Cerejido, who's going to take it from here. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, New York City was undergoing a moment of intense change. It's yours. It was the golden age of hip hop. But it was also a time in which communities of black and brown New Yorkers were seeing the effects of both the crack epidemic and the decades-long war on drugs. Steve Young reports on a new kind of cocaine called crack. Last year, we had over 2,000 homicides here in New York City. That's an average of five or six homicides a day. This is the East Harlem that Willie Perdomo tries to wrangle with in his newest book of poetry, The Crazy Bunch. Since the 1990s, Willie has been known as a poet, performer, and writer with a special interest in the sounds and sights of the city he grew up in. And it's going to be like two church boys talking loud on the train, praising the Lord in a Spanglish hip-hop speak. Pero que son? That's Willie on Deaf Poetry Jam back in 2001. His most recent book focuses on a weekend in the lives of a group of young men growing up in Harlem, some of them based on characters from Willie's own adolescence. Basically, this is all my neighborhood, but most of, really, most of the book takes place in, you know, what are we on, 120? Yeah, we're right around, you know, where everything happens, basically, where I grew up. Along with producer Sayor Quevedo, Willie and I decided to take a walk through his old neighborhood to hear some of his work from his newest book and reflect on his teenage years growing up in Harlem. Even the not-so-memorable spots. Does this block have a particular significance no, for you? No, not really. <laughs> this is 117th Street. Not really. I mean, all these neighborhoods look different to me. Like, this building right here is just, you know, I would have never imagined a building like that would just go up well, in this neighborhood. What does it look like? For right the... now, it looks like a stencil. Since the 90s, many people have left the neighborhood because of rapidly rising rents. Willie himself moved out to New Hampshire in 2013. And over the last several years, East Harlem has seen, like many parts of New York, an influx of developers, as evidenced by the shiny new condo we're standing in front of. It's way out of place. It seems like an, uh, an anomaly almost, you know? But it seems like it's trying too hard, too, you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> so we're going this way. So this is where I grew up, 115. East 122nd Street. The whole world really existed on this street. This is where I learned how to play cards. This is where I saw my first gun. This was everything. This is where I started thinking about becoming a poet. And this is 
where I wrote some of uh, where Nickel Cost a Dime on my good old fashioned Olympia electric typewriter that I was my only Christmas gift for 1985. And you could hear me at like two or three o'clock in the morning. All you hear is clack, 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 ding, clack, 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 clack. That's all you hear. That's all you hear, you know? So in the back, we played stickball. And then this building came up and it had a nice basketball court. They called this 1990. Now they call it the Smiley, I think they call it. Like it has a whole new fancy gentrified name now. <laughs> the Smiley. The Smiley, I think it's called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now eventually what happens in a young brother's life, really you grew up here, if, you know, if that's your trajectory, we're not mm -hmm. gonna say for all young brothers, is that basically you make your way from the stoop and you make your way to the corner. Mm -hmm. And in the corner is where you start learning all your lessons, you know, about manhood. I'm not sure if it's the same now, but it was like that back then. Mm -hmm. You know, we can go left here and then come back up. And this is the corner. No, I'll tell okay. you the corner. We're, we're about to walk up in the corner. This is one of the hottest corners. In, in fact, you know that Lou Reed song where he says, go, when he's going looking for the man, this is where he ends up. 123rd and Lexus is around there looking for his man, for his connect. I'm waiting for my man. So this is where everything was. Everything. There was a Cuban man named Julio who had a video game shop in this little store coming up here. Um, but, you know, this would be filled, filled with people who just lived in the neighborhood and kids and all that. You know, there was, there was commerce, there was traffic, there was music, there were uh, babies being born. And uh, it seemed like such an electric place, so electric that I could see it coming out the train station on a summer night, I could see this block shimmering basically. That's what the way it felt like. But maybe because I was so excited to come back, you know. Why is that? Well, because the closest thing you knew to family was here. The Crazy Bunch is the story of one tragic and life-changing summer weekend told through the eyes of a crew of friends. And it's modeled off of the memories and stories Willie grew up with. His work is reflective of Harlem culture and the figures and places that made it what it is. An attempt in some ways to preserve a place and time that no longer exists. I read that you said that even though the buildings are the same, when you come here, the faces are completely different. Completely, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's something ghostly to that, right? Like, you're used to seeing certain folks on certain corners or sitting on the stoop or being in front of a store or in the store. Or, walking down the avenue and those kind of moments now are few and far between, but it's a tension, you know, it's a tension of kind of being a native son and coming back and feeling like a stranger, mm -hmm. but yet feeling like this is still, you know, your barrio, this is still your your neighborhood, this is still your, your block. And, and if someone were to to doubt that you would have enough stories to tell them. <laughs> Actually, can we read the first poem? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So this is the. Uh, it's called "In the Face of What You Remember," and the title is taken from a from a Langston Hughes poem. And the first stanza in the poem was the first that came to me when the book started. You remember that was the sum of up rock, quarter water, speed knots, pillow bags, two for five, Jesus pieces, and bamboo. The Willy Bobo was turned up to 10, and some would have said that a science was dropped on our summer. 
The summer that was lit with whispers of wild style, rock steady battles, and white party plates made all kinds of moons on the playground foam. The summer the burner was used to eat and mandate, inspired Sunday sermons, became a literary influence with humming climaxes, a bribable tale, a dub tied to a string, and squashing beef wasn't an option. The summer of fresh shrills and a future somersaulting off a monkey bar, a future placing bets that all us old heads desperate to find a new cool could not flip pure. That was the summer that our grills dropped to below freezing. Back then, Palo Viejo was thermal and therapy bones were smoked in the cut and you had to expect Jungle Jim giggle to be accompanied by a buckshot. That was the summer Charlie Chase hijacked megawatts from Rose's kitchenette, found gems in a milk crate, spun his one and twos below rims that still vibrated with undocumented double dunks. The same summer we became pundits and philosophers, poets and pushers that we all tried to fly, but only one of us succeeded. The summer that Papu turned up to extra status, the only one in the crew who had reduced fame's window by a fifth when the camera panned his Kazao-laced uprock in the Roxy scene of Beach Street. One could say we gave the block gasp and gossip, body and bag, a folktale worth its morphology. That was the season we had reason to rock capes and wings, chains and rings. Some of us flew higher than most, and tricks were hardly ever pulled from a hat. All that and a bag of barbecue bontons was enough for at least one of us to say, I'm straight. Did you always know that you were going to be the storyteller of your group of friends? Uh, no, I think that happened as a result of first listening, you know, and just kind of being an observer and then trying to relay what I had just seen to on paper, you know. I think the, the storytelling really came from my mother and just kind of in the living room, and she loved telling stories about things she saw seen on TV, the old days at the Palladium, hanging out to the break of dawn and then even after. So she was always full of stories, but I think, you know, I grew up around some really great storytellers, I think. And the storytelling process was a part of their bodies, you know, so people were always talking. That's why I like to walk and talk, you know, and so that, that was part of it. I think storytelling kind of also gave me a way to access my imagination in a place was, that was sometimes a little bit too real, you know, in a way that I could not process. Well, one thing that's interesting about this poem is is I get the sense that sort of the different people in your in your crew mm-hmm. kind of like played roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, like, even when the, this happened to the setting of of I mean, at what year would you say this book this book took place? It would be like in the '90s for sure. And, and something that really needs to be emphasized is that the book is kind of a work of fiction before anything else, you know. And while it's based on some images and, uh, and and the language and the vernacular of its time, you know, I, that that should be emphasized, I think. But the idea of living in a, in a tribe, and in this, this particular instance, the tribe was, for the most part, a male tribe. And so what I started noticing is that everyone had a strength. There was kids who could run fast. There were kids who were like, Romeos, Romeos to the max. There were kids who could fight. And it's weird to find yourself in that kind of dynamic and not have a single strength that you can point to, you know, except that you were like a bookish kid, right? So that you were by default considered the smart kid, you know? Well, that's definitely a strength. I think so, but it wasn't considered one in that domain. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So when I became a poet, the beautiful thing about becoming a poet was that I wasn't shamed as a result of being a poet, you know? And so everyone that I was hanging out with at the time really celebrated the fact that I was a poet. You know, that's the kind of role that started to, to develop and, you know, and also being in that space where you're seeing things that someone else might not be seeing, right? Mm -hmm. When you ask that question, do you have an example that comes to your mind? So there's one time the image comes up and I was standing on a corner and this, this man walks into the bodega with a, with a cactus on his head, you know? And I'm standing on the corner, I look and he just kind of scurries right into it. And I'm like, this is kind of an odd image. Willie's poetry is thick with vivid imagery and confronts some of the harder aspects of growing up in East Harlem in the early 1990s, including the violence he witnessed growing up. In a poem from his book called How It Went Down, Willie alludes to a shooting from his teenage years. This is how it went down. A man walks into Gaddafi's with a cactus on his head. This sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. We called him Gaddafi, but his name was Domingo. We called him Qaddafi because he looked like Qaddafi. The cactus wanted three for 10. When you take shorts, you can only take as much as been took, but when you're taken, then you need to start thinking about what they're calling theirs and what you're calling yours. The car that suddenly pulls up is more delivery than package, more end stop than ellipsis. The dreads sit there and perch there and chill there and lamp there and chill there and rest there, still there, word, they don't move. Nesta let the dreads know that nothing was happening, even though he just opened up. Petey says, I heard those cactuses never die. They say that getting shot is a scene study where all your reward circuits go blank. You only remember the blast, the smoke after the blast, the nanosecond after the smoke, and then you remember the cactus, untouched, sitting on a stoop, still there. This is a book that deals with death yeah. and with, with trauma. Why write about these particular instances of violence and trauma? Yeah, because they were a signature, I think, in my, in my own coming of age. I think um, I've always wondered what the effect of seeing that kind of violence had on my generation now that we all are turning 50, and, you know, and how is that showing up? and our approach to living, you know? There are a generation of black and Puerto Rican men who are the age of 50 and over who are probably suffering from some sort of post-trauma based on all the, the ravages of the drug war, you know? When you say post-trauma stress, or yeah. what, how did that manifest for you? I think some of it was that, you know, it manifested as a part of my, my silences. I think it manifested in my need to dream a little bit more, my need to escape a little bit more. It manifested clearly as a younger person, there's a level of self-destructive behavior that's not the most healthiest. It could be anything from eating a Big Mac to drinking too much rum. It shows up in your body, it shows up in, in your sugar, it shows up in your cholesterol, it shows up in the way you perceive things. It shows up in the way you have arguments with folks. It shows up on the way you might get angry for no reason. So I think the manifestation is, is a multitude of ways, you know, and how it shows up. 
And sometimes, if you're lucky, you can kind of use your art to think about it. So the conflicts that maybe you could not play out in your existent life are conflicts that you might be able to play in your creative life. Willie continues to write about Harlem and visits when he can. He's the recipient of a Pen Beyond the Margins Award and the author of several books of poetry, including his most recent, The Crazy Bunch. episode originally aired in July of 2019. It was produced by Sayer Quevedo and edited by Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelhotz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, find us on all of your social media. Stay safe. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by California Endowment, building a strong state by improving the health of all Californians. The Wincote Foundation. And the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk to you again. With civil unrest, the pandemic, and the economic crisis, you want to know what's happening right when you wake up. And that's why there is Up First, the news you need in about 10 minutes from NPR News. Listen every day. I'm Maria Hinojosa, next time on Latino USA. The protests against police brutality are bringing up complex dialogues about identity, race, and responsibility. A conversation with Afro-Latina activist and historian Rosa Clemente. What do Latinos and Latinas need to discuss and do in this historic moment? That's next time on Latino USA.